but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We have reached the final episode of 2019. Yes, that is correct. There there still could be a floating episode. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. There could be a Christmas surprise. I would say we were exhausted, but we've been a bit energized over the past week because we're pretty bowled over by how the GoFundMe has gone so far. I'm, I'm completely sincere when I say that. It's crazy. In addition to that, so many of you have written such wonderful things on the GoFundMe page. I read one to you because you hadn't seen it and you said, wow, if people continue doing this, I'm going to start to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of truth in that because honestly, there are so many people who've donated who we've never heard from. We, uh, we are really just shocked that so many people have responded to this. And so all this is to say we thank you immensely. And it makes us very motivated uh, mm -hmm. to continue to put out a good product going forward and, and hopefully a better one. Yes. A couple notes on the GoFundMe going forward. We had said when we were teasing it that we intended to keep it running through the Australian Open. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first being we started early because, I mean, this is such a difficult time of year for a lot of people money-wise that we didn't want to we didn't want people to feel rushed in having to contribute in a certain window right like there's mm -hmm. thanksgiving black friday shopping christmas january lord knows everybody's broke in january <laughs> you know right right and then the other bit of it is that historically for us we get our most traffic at the grand slams so it it made sense for us to potentially try and and have new listeners be a part of the process as well so thank you again to everybody who's donated. We encourage you to share the GoFundMe with your friends. If you know folks who like tennis, you know, have them listen to a couple of your favorite episodes and see if that moves the needle a little bit. <laughs> All right. What we're really here to do is recap the season in men's tennis. Quite different from the women in that most of the same people were achieving the big things. And that's been the case in men's tennis for over a decade. We had two people win two slams each. Nadal and Djokovic are still one and two in the world. Roger Federer is three. There, of course, are a lot of rumblings in that next-gen, second-tier Dominic team rung of the ladder. They're getting much louder. Yes, this business of the big three still being firmly entrenched, I feel as though that's most clear at the Grand Slam level, but stuff is percolating more so than it ever has before. We had Dominic Thiem winning a Masters 1000. We had Daniil Medvedev winning two. We had Stefanos Tsitsipas winning the year-end title. A lot of things happened. Team had a big win over Djokovic at the French Open to get back to the Roland Garros final again, but he got there with a little bit more moxie, I felt, this year. Folks who had good results in the past have built on them. Folks have entered the top 10 for the first time that maybe... 1C tier. <laughs> it's becoming a little bit more populated. Mm -hmm. And the young guys are on the come up. We saw a lot of young guys have big results this year. 
So if you're looking at the ATP tour as far as what's the product going to look like going forward, I think it it's in a more positive light now than it has been in the last few years because we've actually seen concrete signs of players stepping up. The trouble for the ATP going forward after the big three, I felt it was a problem for them if you just skipped the entire middle generations and relied upon the Shapovalovs, the Ogielezims, the Hachanovs, all these young up-and-coming players, right? Mm. Medvedev, Tsitsipas. If, if the guys like Team didn't make a mark at all during this transition period, then you'd be in trouble because you, you could be in store for a few barren years. Right. But I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't at this point. I remember a few years ago we were saying the ATP is in rough shape, like they need to get their house in order, and <laughs> the next-gen process has been uh, kind of iterative. It's It's been a, like beta testing, and a lot of it has worked. Yeah. A lot of it has stuck. The difference on the WTA is that their next-gen is winning big titles, and we're starting to see the successes of that investment in next-gen on the ATP side. So, the four slam winners. Djokovic starts the year by beating a surprising finalist in Nadal, a Nadal with a, a reworked serve. If you recall, Nadal kind of blitzed his way through that field to get to the final. We thought that he stood a, a pretty decent chance because his game was so aggressive mm -hmm. and he was beating people so easily. As it turned out, Djokovic handled him probably as easily as he ever has in that final. <laughs> he got clobbered. At Roland Garros, after a difficult clay season, Rafael Nadal wins number 12, La Duodecima, against Dominic Thiem for the second straight year in the final. At Wimbledon, I, we all know what happened at Wimbledon. It, <laughs> it was both uh, heartbreaking for some, invigorating for others. Tragedy and triumph. This match was one that was referenced probably the most with respect to any question we asked the listeners for this rap episode. Mm -hmm. Favorite moment, most surprising, most shocking, funniest, depending how evil you are on the evil scale. Right. <laughs> but for drama and theater, you cannot do much better than this match. No. At the U.S. Open, we had another five-set men's final. Rafa Nadal wins U.S. Open number four in this decade, beating... Daniil Medvedev, Rafa looked shook in the fifth set. And I remember saying that he needed to kind of wheel and come again in that fifth set because he looked tired. He looked beat physically and mentally, and he did it because Medvedev had serious momentum. On the Masters 1000 level, a big moment for Dominic Team winning a Masters 1000 on a hard court, albeit a slower hard court, a grittier hard court, a more high bouncing hard court. What Ever. But it was versus Mr. Federer. It was. In Miami, Roger Federer, coming off of losing in the final to team at the previous event in Indian Wells, he wins beating Isner, the defending champion. That seems like ages ago that Isner was the finalist in Miami. I had to double check that it was even this year. In Monte Carlo, Fabio Fonini. Wow, this was... A wild tournament. One of the more surprising Masters winners in, in the past five years, Fabio Fognini over Dusan Lajovic in the final. Fabio beating a kind of a listless Nadal earlier in the tournament. In Madrid, Djokovic beats Tsitsipas. And in Rome, 
what happened what happened in Madrid happened and what happened in Rome was that Rafa won the title avenging his loss to Tsitsipas in the semifinals and then beating Djokovic in the final you kind of left out a happened in that thing it started off with Monte Carlo what happened <laughs> I didn't in want Monte to do Carlo happened thing. what happened in Madrid happened what happened in Rome well here we are <laughs> this is Rome uh, in that final, if you recall, Nadal beat Djokovic 6-love in the first set. That's when you got the sense that Nadal on clay was back in the driver's seat. Yeah. In Canada, in Montreal, Nadal wins again. He defended his Rogers Cup title, beating Medvedev. In Cincinnati, Medvedev reached, I think it was his third straight final at the time, beating Goffin in the final. We get to the U.S. Open, then Shanghai. Medvedev wins another Masters, beating Alexander Zverev. And that was Zverev's only big final of the year. And then it's capped in Paris with Djokovic winning his second Masters 1000 of the year, beating Shapovalov, who had an exceptional finish to his year, winning a title as well. And finally, in the World Tour Finals, Stefanos Tsitsipas beats Dominic Thiem in the final. So we've got 14 big titles on the ATP. Next year, there will be 15 with the Olympics. But of those 14, they were not quite as spread out as they are on the WTA. Nadal wins four, two majors, and two masters. Djokovic wins four, two majors, two masters. And Medvedev wins two, two masters. So that's 10 of 14, won by three gentlemen. Right. On the ATP 500s level, of which there are 13 tournaments... In Rotterdam, Gael Monfils got a good start to the year. Les Logères in Rio, he wins his first tournament. In Dubai, Federer scores the win. Acapulco, this tournament kind of loomed large over Wimbledon. Because when Kyrgios beats Nadal there, their rematch at Wimbledon becomes one of the most anticipated matches mm-hmm. of the year. So Kyrgios winning Acapulco in Barcelona Dominic Team wins in Halle, Federer. Queens, one of the Herculean efforts of the year. Feliciano Lopez winning singles and doubles on the same day, winning something like five matches in two and a half days. In Hamburg, Basilashvili wins. Washington, Kyrgios gets his second 500 of the year. Beijing, Dominic Team starts his surge at the end of the season. If you recall, he suffered from some viral illness that kind of uh, derailed his summer hardcourt season. In Tokyo, Djokovic wins, Vienna Dominic team wins again, and then the final ATP 500 of the year in Basel, Federer wins his third. His third 500 title. Correct. So the title leaders this year, Djokovic and team were tied at five, and then we had three players winning four titles, Nadal, Medvedev, and Roger Federer. Not the, you know, the 11 titles, 10 titles that we've seen in the past during the heydays of the big three, but things are a lot more spread out these days. Also, Nadal played 12 tournaments. Djokovic and Federer, I believe, played 16 each. They're not, for whatever reason, be it body preservation, be it injury, they're not playing as much as the other guys. Somebody in the top 10 hit as high as 27 tournaments, and it wasn't Dominic Team. Oh. It was in the 20s, but some... 27? Oh, Go, sorry, Goffin played 27. Are you serious? I think, I, I think so. <laughs> Dom, <laughs> David Goffin. Is that even possible? Well, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> On the double side, a lot of noise was being made by a few different teams. 
Herbert Mahou win the career Grand Slam at the Australian Open, beating Continent and Piers. At Roland Garros, we get a shocking winner in Kravitz and Mies, beating Chardy and Martin. At Wimbledon, the newly number one team from Colombia, Cabal and Farah, win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. A bit of a doubles caveat there, if you recall Cabal and Farah, they had lost previously in the weeks leading up to Wimbledon to Andy Murray and Feliciano Lopez. At the Queen's Club Nature Valley Fever Tree. Fever, yeah, Fever Tree. Yes. <laughs> and so they play again in the first round of Wimbledon. That's correct, right? And then they beat right. Murray and Lopez. We're going to speak a little bit about a couple of observations, some notable things, before we uh, get into Davis Cup, because we haven't talked about that. And then we'll do our listener questions and let that kind of inform the rest of the recap. I think Roberto Bautista Agut is the bookend of the ATP season. He was present for so many pivotal moments. His name kept popping up. He had an excellent year, finishing at number 10, but there's there's something like Forrest Gumpian about his year, right? Explain that. So Forrest Gump was present at many important historical moments. <laughs> he was just kind of there. And this year, Bautista, he beats Novak Djokovic in Doha in the very first week of the season and wins the title. He gets the uh, good or bad luck of drawing Andy Murray in the first round of the Australian Open in what might have one at one time been Andy Murray's final match ever. There was so much emotion surrounding that match because Andy made this shock announcement before the Australian Open, and the tennis world was was kind of on edge. Everybody was upset, and Bautista gets that unenviable task of playing and fighting against the great Andy Murray and possibly ushering him out of the sport. Of course, we didn't know then what we know now, but what a way to start your year in the, in the very first three weeks of the year. But I think folks felt that if it were one person who had to be in that position, he would have been one of the few that you would choose. Mm-hmm. One of the the nice guys of men's tennis. Workmanlike, who's built his game to the point where he has weapons now, that he's he's excelling, and he's still so humble. So then we get to Wimbledon. He is a surprising semifinalist. He has to postpone his bachelor party in Ibiza. Because he had no expectation of making it this <laughs> right. far, to be frank. Eventually, Novak Djokovic avenges his previous two losses to Bautista in the semifinals. And Bautista goes on and has his bachelor weekend in Ibiza. It was a breakout year for him at the slams as well because he hadn't progressed to a semifinal before in his career. He'd been somebody who was there or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And this year he was able to, to take it a bit further. And finally, in the final week of the ATP season, we get this just incredible story. A tragic story. He gets to Davis Cup to play for Spain in Spain. He got news that his father's health had taken a turn for the worse, and he went home, left Davis Cup, was at his father's side as he passed away, and after the funeral, he came back. He came back and he won a match. And so for somebody who is known for being so workmanlike and just down to business, a lot of his personal life was big news this year. This happening 18 months after his mother passed away as well. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks want to lionize him and, and make him this Braveheart kind of figure for doing this. What's important to remember here is that there is no set way 
for somebody to grieve. And as long as you're not hurting somebody with the decisions that you make, let people do what they feel they need to do in the moment to get by. Bautista said that he absolutely his father would have been mad at him if he did not get back to Davis Cup. I just kind of look at this from a distance and kind of be in awe of him. Not that he's any better of a person for playing this match, but because, let's be frank, the courage that it took to do it mm-hmm. was inspiring. But I think your point in, in bringing up Bautista go through this prism was that for such an unassuming player, he featured so prominently in some of the biggest stories of the year. Right. Uh, he sort of found himself in these big spotlights and handled himself with a plum as usual. John Wertheim did some spitballing about the the pivot point of the ATP season being Rafael Nadal in Rome, sort of the what happened at moment. He recapped quite succinctly his clay season so far, which was by his standards very disappointing, losing to Fognini first, then team, then Tsitsipas, but going into Rome with no titles. And Rafa turning around his season in Rome after considering taking a pause in his season to regroup mentally and physically, that changes everything. That, you know, now we have another hardcourt Masters in Montreal. We have another hardcourt Major in the U.S. Open. We have a Davis Cup win. There's so much that changed on the day he won Rome. And I don't want to overstate that, but it's interesting to think what would or wouldn't have happened if Rafa hadn't been able to turn around his season there. I think more interesting for me is how momentum can shift so quickly with these top fellas on the ATP Tour. Djokovic can be looking lost at sea and something can click for him so quickly. Nadal can look like he's invincible at at the Australian Open and then be totally vanquished by Djokovic in that final and uh, pick up a couple injuries and then he's struggling through the best part of his season and for him it's almost never as simple as something clicking he needs the repetition he needs practice he plays with a lot of doubt a lot of the time he always talks about the good feelings once he's able to to recapture that because of being willing to go through the struggle like all these top players are, then we see a complete 180 for the rest of the season. But even at Wimbledon, it wasn't obvious that things were firing on all cylinders. He played extremely well to get to the semifinals and played not just not a great match against Federer there. And so looking forward, it was a little more difficult to predict that he would have so much success for the rest of the season. Like it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Yeah, but it wasn't. That's part of momentum. But it wasn't unheard of either. No, but that's part of momentum. You then create your own luck mm. as well. That stuff kind of snowballs. Whereas in Monte Carlo or Madrid, it would have gone against him in those matches where right. he was able to eat them out. Another observation I had from this year is that because of the way that Djokovic's season ended, we're looking at a season with two majors and two masters titles as something of a disappointment. And I think it's unfair the way that his season is being painted in retrospect. It's absurd, it, frankly. Right? It's like, it's crazy. It's not one of his best seasons, but he has probably five seasons that are legendary Hall of Fame stuff. 
He won Wimbledon after being down two match points. He absolutely pummeled Rafael Nadal in the Australian Open final. We got the Paris indoors, Madrid on clay. And because, well, maybe, maybe not because, but part of the reason is that he didn't do well at the World Tour finals. Serbia didn't uh, go on to the semifinals at Davis Cup. I, I, like, I'm struggling to understand how anyone could be disappointed by Djokovic's season. He was so close, like within shouting distance of number one, and he's still struggling with the elbow injury. So I'd say like, cut him a, a little bit of slack here. One of the other big themes of 2019 was Andy Murray in general, and the wild ride that we went on with, with his career and the prospect of him retiring, starting in Melbourne, and then ending up with him coming back at Queens winning his very first tournament back as a doubles player with Feliciano Lopez, eventually winning a title, a whole-ass title in Antwerp, beating Stan Wawrinka in the final. It's, it's, it's so difficult. I do not have the words to describe all that happened with Andy Murray in 2019. <laughs> and we just sat down last night to watch his documentary, or as Rochesterians say, documentary, on Amazon. And it was an emotional roller coaster, which sums up what his entire season was. Lo and behold, we didn't know the full hundred, the full extent of just how much an emotional roller coaster it has been for him in the last two years. It was surprising to me how much access he allowed the filmmakers to have. He left these voice memos that were raw. He revealed a lot more, I think, than he has in the past about his experience with the Dunblane shooting. Um, he rarely talks about that. He talked about his brother Jamie leaving home about a year after the shooting, and he got shortly upset up, about it. Shortly and, after his parents divorced. Mm, we it, saw his father, who we almost never see. We also saw the inside of his hip. Wow. We saw if you way see more graphic, graphic, gratuitous footage of a hip resurfacing. You know where to go. We saw way more of Andy Murray than we ever imagined we would have. Like we talked about before, during Australia, it looked like, and it looked like he believed this could be his final tournament. He decided to take a chance with Bob Bryan's advice on the hip resurfacing surgery. And now understanding this as kind of the end of a two-year process of trying literally everything and nothing really working. He breakdanced. He did breakdancing. <laughs> if you want to see Andy Murray breakdancing, watch this documentary. Now that you've made fun of how my people say it, you don't know how to say it, right? I know. I said it all kind of messed up just now. <laughs> there's still uh, there's still some, I think, uncertainty about how the hip will hold up over time. His doctor said something like, if you put in seven years of professional tennis, there's a small, small chance that the hip could be destroyed. No, the doctor said, what if I told you that for seven years of playing tennis, you'll have to deal with a 15% or 30% chance of your hip being total shit again. What would you do? Would you still play? So I think he's decided to play. But, I, I mean, is he really asking for seven years? It seems like he's happy with anything right now. One of the things that I found interesting, getting a bit of a inside peek as to who Andy Murray is, we see him as this beacon on the ATP Tour for inclusivity, for equity, always at the ready to correct reporters when they want to exclude WTA players. That that famous clip of 
him being asked about what it's like to be the first player to have double Olympic gold medals and he goes male player because Serena and Venus have done it multiple times over. And we were given this narrative that that stems less from his want and desire to be inclusive that wasn't even mentioned at all but they had this kind of throwaway segment where they made it seem like Andy just needs to question everything that he's always kind of combative about the the small things the minutiae the fine details but like big picture stuff he's a lot more expansive in his thoughts right you know they didn't tell the entire story because it was just kind of a throwaway clip but there's definitely something to to that. One of the reasons that Andy is such a good champion for women's sport might be because he is so stubborn and he's so contrarian that he just feels the need to like stick it in there whenever he feels like it. He loves the pushback, like the tension. And you can see it on court, but with the big things, he said, "You know, I think I'm I'm a good student basically. I do what the coaches tell me, I do what the physios tell me. I don't fight about that big stuff." but little trifles. Mm -hmm. I'm just not willing to accept that what we've conceived of him as this feminist icon within men's sport is just a byproduct. And I'm I'm, I'm not really about that life. (laughs) Okay, okay. Davis Cup. Yeah, we promised that we would cover this because we've missed it over the past few weeks. Obviously, there was a lot of controversy about this event going in with how it has been completely refashioned. And where are we now? I think it it was clearly very popular. It was there was so much engagement about it on social media, as I mean, as is to be expected. Tennis Twitter is going to talk about it for better or worse. There were obviously a lot of misgivings from commentators, reporters, the Twitter commentariat. But I think there was a lot to take away from it, both positive and negative. You said popular. It was popular for better or for worse. Right. There are a lot of folks who enjoyed it. There are a lot of folks who hated it. We talked about in our pre-open era episode just how important Davis Cup was in the first 50 years of the century, of the 20th century. Right, right. How it was probably more important than the Grand Slams for many decades. And it's just in the last 20 to 30 years that that has changed, right? And so with... The tethering of Davis Cup to nationalism and the use of sport as propaganda to further nationalistic goals. You know, like that tethering has become frayed over the last couple decades. Mm -hmm. And so the import that Davis Cup held for such a long time as being the banner event for all these tennis federations around the world, it's no longer the case. It's so something needed. It's still there, but it's reduced. It's. It's significantly reduced and something needed to be done. I don't think there are many people who would say that nothing needed to be done to tweak Davis Cup. Or that it's just perfect the way it is. Exactly. But what we got was a complete overhaul. And this overhaul seemed to play second fiddle to a second year exhibition in Labor Cup. And so you go from Davis Cup having this rich history to kind of an afterthought at the end of the season. What this tournament should be thanking its stars for is one Rafael Nadal Pereira because on home soil he carried that Spanish team to that title and that was able to brush over a lot of the flaws that could have sunk this event 
in the first year. Right. So what was there? What worked is that the buy-in from players was was clearly present. Rafa, Novak, the Canadian team, there was so much to love about the actual tennis being played. But like you said, Nadal, I mean, just lit up. He's won the Davis Cup several times before this. He has an incredible record in singles. And the week on an indoor hard court at the end of a long season... At altitude. Where he doesn't normally excel, it's just he made such a case for this event in this format. The the event also succeeded in giving doubles such a prominent place in the event. Right. Because each tie, I guess, only had three rubbers, two singles, and then the deciding was always the doubles. The third rubber was always doubles. In some cases, the doubles was not played, but in many cases, doubles was the decider. Throughout the week, Rafa beats... Hachanov, he beats Dodig Pavic in doubles, defeats Schwartzman in the quarterfinals, uh, plays Dan Evans, Great Britain in the semifinals. He and Feliciano Lopez defeats Skupski and Murray. He beats Denis Shapovalov, who was on such a run in the finals against Canada. And I haven't mentioned all of his matches, but the, the caliber of opponents was there in a way that it's not always in Davis Cup. And the ease with which he beat some of these opponents giving or allowing Diego Schwartzman, what, two or three games mm. indoors? <laughs> that's that's crazy. In that final, after all that he's played, something like eight matches in five days by the end of it, the final match he plays, he has the opportunity to secure the Davis Cup by beating Shapovalov, and he does it in straight sets. After his countryman comes back from his father's funeral and beats Felix Auger-Aliassim in the first match, of that final. Can we talk about Canada? Yeah, sure. <laughs> this team, the Canadian team is so deep because for most of the tournament, they did not play Felix. They didn't play Milos. This is Vashek Pospisil and Denis Shapovalov doing almost everything for Canada. A healthy Canadian team is very deep because that would include Milos Raonic. Right. I would argue that Canada made, the, made it this far because of Vashek Pospisil. Say yes. what we have said over the course of this past year about Vashek. <laughs> uh, but he was resurgent at the end of the year, winning some challenger matches and events. And he parlayed that into Davis Cup magic. Right. Beating players that earlier in the year, absolutely no chance. Keep in mind, he was off the tour for months, rehabbing an injury. Mm. And so this is ex- exactly the type of momentum to get him back into the feeling of being a top 30 ATP player again. It wasn't that long ago that he was a player of heft on the ATP tour. And they're all higher ranked than he is. Opelka, Fonini, he and Dennis teamed up to play Hachanov and Ruby in doubles and won. And then Shabovalov beat Berrettini, Taylor Fritz, Hachanov. These are, you know, Canada knocked out basically four world powers in men's tennis. Italy, USA, Australia, and Russia to reach this final. The things that didn't work, it has to be said that it is unfair, given the history of this event, that one team maintains such a strong home court advantage throughout the entirety of the tournament. Right. When the character of Davis Cup historically has been these raucous home court advantages, these home crowds, and a lot of fans weren't, are just simply not going to be able to come and create that kind of atmosphere. So Spain had kind of an unearned advantage by being at home. Or being in bed with Piquet. 
Oh, right. like, I mean, what other ways there to look oh, at it? Right. Why I, was Madrid picked as the first yeah. host? But any going forward, if this is the format, any country is going to be seriously advantaged. Yes. The website, the app was atrocious. <laughs> I mean, it's we mock Grand Slam sometimes when they have faux pas. We've seen this happen time and time again. But this this took the cake. This was bad from start to finish i think that's a larger thing in tennis like why should we not use google and all these scoring apps wikipedia even what are your digital properties doing better than those you know know when you're following a tennis match and you need to find something out you need to find out well what is the head-to-head of this player against that player are you going to go to the atp website or the wta website i don't no. Are you gonna? Where are you gonna go to get a live score? Are you gonna take the time to open the ProScore app, or are you gonna just Google the name and then it'll pop right. up right, right then and there? It is disappointing that there isn't one spot where you can feel comfortable to get everything that you need to follow tennis if you are that keen about it. Mm. There was too much tennis in this week. It, I think it's it's too much to pass to pack into one week, and the matches went way too late. It's not great for fans. It's not great for the players. That's something that I hope that they work out in the future. And the larger issue that this is going to bubble up a lot over the next few years is that the calendar is a problem, right? Over the past few decades, these tennis associations have been trying to balance a lot of interests in their calendars. And you've added Labor Cup, which is Roger Federer's event through the ATP. You've now added the ATP Cup in January, and there's the Davis Cup. So you have all these team events that are supposedly happening every year, and you worry about oversaturation, uh, buy-in from players. And the thing, like, with players, if there's money and there's this sheen of prestige involved, the top players are going to play and they're going to try. Because that's just who they are. Well, to answer your question, maybe the problem that you describe of oversaturation the answer to that from the organizers was just to not make it accessible to folks so you just couldn't watch it (laughs) because who could really find the davis cup to watch it (laughs) i know this is going to be an issue going forward because these events are novel now but in a few few years they won't be they're not going to be as exciting because it won't be new so you have to find a way to make this sustainable in the future Davis Cup, I was prepared to hate it. I didn't hate it. Mm -hmm. I found myself interested by the end of it. Of course, I like a lot of the Spanish players, so that was not surprising in that respect. And I also live in Canada, and I have a vested interest in following Canadian tennis. Right. So for us, it was was about as good a result as it could have been in terms of keeping our interest throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Roger Federer and Alexander Zverev did not have a vested interest in Davis Cup. They were like, fuck that. Well, Federer has other things going on. I I don't think it's shocking that he should choose to not play Davis Cup in this format at the end of the season. No. He had scheduled this Latin American exhibition tour, which is awesome, because how often does South America and Central America get to see Roger Federer, if ever? And he took along young Alexander Zverev as a partner. (laughs) Who we know hated this iteration of Davis Cup. (laughs) He talked about it like it's something that he's known his entire life Mm. and how dare they have messed with it. 
Right. When in fact he's played it like two or three times, right? But his opinion, as I sit here mocking him, was that it was a travesty. It was terrible that they were doing this at Davis Cup and he had no desire to be a part of it. And that is an entirely valid opinion yeah. to have. No, I'm not mocking that at all. I think this Latin American tour is awesome. I think bringing tennis to fans in different countries that rarely get it is super cool. They played in Santiago. They had to postpone or cancel the match in Bogota because of protests. And we get to Mexico City and 42,000 people attend this match. This is possibly the biggest attendance ever for a tennis match. I couldn't verify that, but that's what that's what I've been hearing. That's what we've been told, and they expect it to be broken when Nadal and Federer play in South Africa. So, honestly, I'm not one to complain about exhibitions because, you know, it's not the same exertion as, as real, real matches that actually count. Let them make their money. And let them complain about the calendar, too. <laughs> I think those are not mutually exclusive. Which is to say somebody can complain about the calendar and still be able to go make a few bucks here and yeah. there without you being... Because it's not the same. Without you being nasty about it. <laughs> you know, folks like to sit here and tell you what you can and cannot do, right? <laughs> just sit there right? sit there on your mother's couch in the basement and just, just let it be. Let and them eat be. your food. And let Mexico City while out because Roger Federer is there. But what I did find hilarious was some folks who traveled to Mexico City to go see that match were then having things to say about people who traveled to Madrid <laughs> to go watch Davis Cup. Like, hello! Oh, man. Like, what, what is going on? Let people live. This is tennis in the in the middle to end of November. Let's just get through it. <laughs> I know. So we asked you again a few questions about your impressions of the ATP season, and you were all very generous in sharing your feelings. We asked, what will you remember most, which I realize is very open-ended. Well, we want to get as many responses as we can. And to the question of what will you remember most, Bad Toss says transcendent Rafa, resurgent Andy, surging team, and plummeting Gimmelstab. We've touched on three of these four things already. Yeah, we have not talked about plummeting Gimmelstab, but I think we well and truly covered this topic throughout the year. (laughs) We did. So we encourage you to go back. We make timestamps so that this stuff is easily accessible to you i was going through our outlines for all the episodes this year we talked about players council and gimmelstab like a lot Mm -hmm. so i hope you all were interested because (laughs) i started to get a little bored of it but bad toss she hit on a lot of things that you all responded with that u.s open final and the wimbledon final those are things that kept coming up Simpsons Paradox at Little Wonder 168 mentioned Rafa kneeling to catch his breath in the fifth set. And there's a lot of symbolic import to that as well, because we know how that match went. It was very touch and go into that well into that fifth set. Brad Hunter offered the Medvedev experience at the US Open (laughs) and his relationship with the crowd from match to match, how he went from embracing this role as villain to accepting culpability for stuff he may have done wrong on court and then transforming into Cinderella almost by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Swing Volley mentioned that one of the things to remember most was Medvedev becoming a troll master. Schultz Talk Tennis had a similar response. Right. He became quite skilled at it as the week goes on. And I do want to circle back to something that we said on our US Open final, which I think 
could have been misconstrued. Because we mentioned the stereotype of this kind of Cold War Soviet villain mm-hmm. right, that you saw like throughout U.S. culture for many, many years. And I grew up in the U.S. I, I saw that growing up. I don't, I don't want people to think that we were supporting that. No. Like what I thought Medvedev was doing was ironically embracing that that villain archetype. So I, if I was misconstrued, it was probably our fault anyway. But I don't want people to think that I, uh, that's how I see the world. But also, even if Medvedev weren't in the moment aware of that aspect of it, in effect, that's how a lot of it played out. Right. To the people in the stands and the casual, especially the casual viewers watching tennis, right? Mm-hmm. We have the rise of team and Tsitsipas from at Rosso underscore Neri. I think James Shank wrote Robert Farah. That's it. That's that's the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> that's 2019. Which if you're not a social media follower of tennis, I think what James is referring to there is Robert Farah's insistence on thirsting up his Instagram. Mm. It could be just workouts. It could be just that. Right. But the way it's shot and the angles and the this and the that and the what have yous, it, it presents a, a different kind of viewing experience. It's rather Chorich-esque, I'd say. There are a lot of these men who are angling for that thirst trap pole position. We've talked about this. on the, oh, We've done yeah. an entire segment on the show before. Morinka is kind of the most obvious about it, I would say. And, I don't uh, even the know most if, self-aware. I mean, he went through a little phase <laughs> after the breakup with Vekic where he was out here advertising what he had to offer. Correct. And yes. so what I want to ask of you now is what were or who were the thirst trappers of 2019? It's oh, an important I, topic. I think it's the usual suspects. You have Verdasco, Gratuitous, Chorich, Wawrinka, Farah. Um, am I missing anyone? Dimitrov. A lot more classy about oh, it. Oh, definitely, Dimitrov. A lot more classy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not here to, to slut-shame anybody. That's not what this is about. <laughs> but Grigor has a different aesthetic that he puts forward. You know? Right. All right, moving on. And then you have the, the folks who who want you to think that they're not thirst-trapping. Like, Stefano Tsitsipas is thirst-trapping. If you recall one of his vlogs, he just casually wakes up out of his bed, and he's in his underwear, and he's mm-hmm. taking extended strolls across the living room in said underwear, right. and goes to the bathroom in said underwear. Like, why was that a choice? <laughs> <laughs> and so my task to ATP players in 2020 is to keep the bullshit at a minimum and keep the thirst trapping coming and diversify. Keep it interesting. Give us different looks. NT Way, Shoals Talks Tennis, Submits King Felix's runs at Indian Wells in Miami. What was that? And was, and was, anyway. Oh, I thought that was a handle. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Felix had an immense first half of the year. Struggled in the second half. But he's beaten Tsitsipas twice. He's beaten Fonini, Basilashvili twice. Chorich, Shapovalov, Kyrgios. Need I go on? Semifinals in Miami. His first final in Rio, losing to Ger. As is the case when we ask these questions, there's a lot of overlap. One of the popular responses was Andy Murray telling Fabio Funi to shut up. Something that I still... I won't attempt to try and replicate Wait, the accent here. If you used your actual accent, like that you were born with, it would be a lot closer. Shut up. Well, no, sorry. Shut up. <laughs> At least when you moved to Canada, you just started dropping your T's, I think. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. 
we're not doing this again. Andy Murray was also a, a big response from folks as far as moment of the year, things that you won't forget easily based on his retirement and comeback and winning. The arc of Andy Murray was a big response here. So too was Bautista Agut and Nadal at the Davis Cup. A bit of recency bias here because mm-hmm. that just happened, but that was a big response from a lot of folks. That's from Vern Jones specifically. And the Wimbledon final, we haven't talked a whole lot about it, but wow, what a moment. This thing had everything. I'm not going to repeat the infamous score because it is triggering for Federer fans, but Novak Djokovic overcame two match points on Federer's serve to win the Wimbledon championship. I liked this from our uh, our follower at Viking Drew B. He said, quote, Federer one good swing short of the greatest moment of his career. Wow, that that hurts. That that is rough. And I think that's what a lot of Federer fans felt in the moment and in the ensuing mm. months and possibly still to this moment. Right. Because we saw a lot of hurt being carried through the second half of the year. Do you remember exactly where you were when Federer lost those two match points? Yes, we were in the car listening to them on satellite radio. Yes. Which you've let that subscription expire and you need to get on that. Uh-huh. That's been like three months now. Uh-huh. But why you can't? Are you no, incapable? Or? You have that account set up. Like you deal with that. <laughs> I deal with other things. <laughs> but yeah, we listened to it on radio, which was an entirely different experience from watching it on TV. And it was it was devastating as a non-Fed fan to watch when right. we came home. Because we had it taped. We came home and watched it and was like, wow, that was... That was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the both of us have kind of a neutral interest in that match. But seeing anyone go through that is just... It's a lot. Especially when it felt so unforced. Yeah. And so, again, commiserations to Fed fans across the globe because that was a memorable moment of 20, <laughs> 2019, but not in a good way at all. But still, Federer won four titles. He won a Masters 1000 in Miami. He won three 500s. It's still a good year. It could have been a great year for him at 38 years old, but for those two match points. And so these fine margins that we always talk about in sport, how they can shift things in big ways, this was one of them. And Djokovic is somebody who handles those kind of points so well, especially against Federer. Like You can envision several of them in your head right now. Yeah, but that's why this is so painful, because yeah. that's not what that was. Mm. True, true, true. You're right. CL Morin61 submits a few Rafa answers here. Uh, people writing off Rafa's season in Madrid. The nadal Kyrgios wimbledon match, which was actually very good, if you remember. And both players had a game plan. I also remember Christos Kyrgios calling Nadal a, quote, fucking prick on IG Live. Do you remember that? It's wait again. I I circle back to my bandwidth. There's okay. just so much. The season is too long. At Willow's court mentions Shoegate. Love it. The Tsitsipas gamesmanship in general, like changing his rackets right before his opponent has to serve on important points. Love it. Petty. You do. You love it. No, I don't love it, but it does give me entertainment. So this is a case of multiple things being true. Yes. Okay. And thank you to at Be More Mala because this tidbit about Tsitsipas and Osaka doing that Instagram live. Do you remember that? And then promptly unfollowing each other. (laughs) (laughs) 
because I had forgotten this. Stephanos uh, released DMs with Naomi, or we think it was with Naomi. And no, I, it was with Naomi. It was? It was. Oh, we know that? Yes, we know this. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have a feeling she didn't really find that cute. But it carried on after that for a little while. Mm. There was another incident where they were going back and forth on the internets, and then this happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> the next question that we asked our listeners was, what were your surprising or shocking moments of the 2019 season? Does anything shock you at the end of this decade? Grigor's... Uh, topsy-turvy season was a bit of a surprise that was proffered by the swing volley cheryl harris at chd 111 gives us lopez winning singles at queens and doubles with annie murray at queens club having to win all those matches over the weekend was that was a legitimate surprise also because it was murray's first tournament back he didn't come back in singles right away he played quite a few tournaments in doubles the first one being at queens club they take out the number one seed in the first match, beating Farah and Cabal, who then go on to win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, finish the year as year-end number ones in doubles. That was a big result. Scholes, again, gives us uh, Novak giving a 15-minute answer on Players' Council and Gimmelstab. <laughs> and I actually had to ask him which, this, which one this was, because I feel like there have been a lot of extensive dialogues with Novak Djokovic about this issue. A few times, I can think of two, that he got kind of upset. This was one of them. He got very testy, but Mm -hmm. then expanded. What was surprising to me was that he kept being caught off guard by these questions. Right. He would say, I haven't had the chance to read the victim letter. Get back to me. And then when folks get back to him, he's like, we're doing this again? (laughs) At Lee underscore tennis says, given how Novak picked up our Nadal in the Australian Open final, surprising how the year went. Two slams, year and number one player of the year. Surprising for Nadal, that is. Catherine Shaw says, Fonini winning a Masters was an unpleasant surprise. <laughs> and we concur. We absolutely concur. But you know, it happened. Fabian, quote, tennis allowing a football player to commandeer its oldest institution. Very succinct. <laughs> And very to the point. Okay. Okay, Fabian. You got your point across. Funniest moments of 2019. This one is referencing my mm-hmm. Russian doll sequence of right. tweets from February through July. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at Sunshine Double One says Sangren's losing streak. And so I got a little bit petty and each time... Sangren would lose in the first round, and I believe it happened nine times in a row. I would tweet about it, very matter of fact, mm-hmm. and just saying that he lost. Right. But what hath thou wrought? Because he reached the round of 16 at Wimbledon, and he beat Joe Wilfried Songa at the US Open. No, no, no. So no, I'm no. blaming that on you. He beat a 34 year old Frenchman. Mm-hmm. It's the end of the season. The, the sentence is finished. I had hoped that. 2019 would see the disappearance of Sandgren. It didn't. He won in Auckland. He gets these one or two results a year now that keep him afloat in the rankings. He's in the 60s. And this was my pushback. Mm -hmm. And he still had enough money left over to contribute to our GoFundMe today. (laughs) You all think you're cute, huh? A lot of folks have had some (laughs) jokes. However, if I find out these are actually the real people, I'm going to be stunned. Yeah, I mean... uh... I would like to think it's a fake Coco Van Duen. We know it's a fake Kendall Roy. That is... 
because he is a fictional character. Yes. Mishi Tennis says the Kyrgyz Tsitsipas summer fling, comma, shoelaces. <laughs> the summer fling, that was something, right? The, like the private jet with, what was it, Kyrgyz Tsitsipas and Medvedev, which was a powder keg. The social media profiling, repairing these relationships, that was hilarious to me. And the shoelace thing. Kyrgyz presenting Stefanos with a fresh pair of shoes to preempt the you know, the Tanya Harding shoelace moment. Del Sarto 13 offers Novak's not too bad. Not too bad. No, that's not it. Not too bad. Mocking Ubaldo. Uh, yes. Uh, We'd be remiss if we didn't mention that a lot of 2019 was the top players mocking Ubaldo Scanagata. <laughs> for sleeping. Uh, most of the time they're having fun with him, except for that incident with Rafa. And Vern Jones submits Marayli Bon. <laughs> the top men's players trying to pronounce English place names. Which, to be fair, I speak English, you speak English. This shit is impossible. How are you supposed to know how Marlebon Marlebon is not, pronounced not even based, go there. based on the way that it's spelled? At the O2 finals, these players were tasked with pronouncing these British names, these towns, mm. these places. And what Vern Jones is referencing specifically, I think, is the overall experience of Marlbun. No. <laughs> no, but how enthusiastic Rafa was to say it incorrectly. Yes, that was my favorite one, where Rafa says Marilybun. <laughs> which pronounce that shit phonetically. Do it. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. You've added here pettiest moment of the year. I've I've put up a, a few nominees, and after, I would like you to vote. It's it's just you. You get to vote. I have Bill Babcock, who you might remember was the... Uh, he was the president of the Grand Slam board, I think. And he was the one who fielded the response to Bernard Tomic after he appealed his first round performance fine at Wimbledon. And... He wrote, like, the pettiest letter I've ever seen about how there's no evidence, Bernard, that you'll change your behavior in the future. So why should I grant this appeal? It was nasty. We did a dramatic reading about it back in July, I think. In August, when the letter leaked. It might have been our first ever dramatic reading. It might have been. So Bill Babcock. Then I have Nick Kyrgios's entire social media presence. Just a lot of rude comments. Some might say cyberbullying. Other might say trash. <laughs> As is your want. The next nominee is the ATP, which announced their new World Tour Finals prize money in 2021 of $14.5 million, very shortly after the WTA announced their record-breaking prize money of $14 million in Shenzhen. This was a prices Right moment. You know how uh, when they're bidding, the four players are bidding on something, this was the... I don't think this is an appropriate... No, it is. It's so somebody bids a 1,000, and the next person says, Bob, I'll bid 1,001. Oh, my God. It was so petty because th this is an arbitrary number, right? The ATP landed on 14 point something okay. just to overbid the WTA. I'm not joking. I see where I'm you're, not joking, I see, Mitch. I see where you're going, but I think that that comparison is tenuous at best. I don't think so at all. And finally... Pettiest moment of the year, us. No, you're talking about me. 
us for any number of reasons, but banning Joe Wilfried Sanga. Banning the 34-year-old Frenchman. Again, I mean... You are taking steps that are out of line. You're making my case. No. Because you won't even... to respect the process. You won't even say his name. Respect the ban. The ban is there for a reason. Like he's Lord Voldemort. You won't even say his name. It's a reason. The time will come... When the 34-year-old Frenchman's name shall be called on the podcast again. But we need to understand that he lost a two-sets-to-love lead to Tennis Sangren at the U.S. Open. But you'll say his name. What is that supposed to hurt? Is that supposed to make, cast me in a terrible light? Am I supposed to look like the villain here? I think not. I am not bothered. Mm-hmm. So... Do you do you have a winner out of those four? It's a tie between the ATP and Bill Babcock. Bill Babcock, try saying that three or four times in a row. Mm-hmm. He was out of pocket, out of line. He was rude as fuck. That is, like we said on the episode when we covered it in real time, so unprofessional. Nobody who has an office should behave in that manner. An office? An office. He wrote it from an office, I presume. How dare you have an office and write that shit? Hmm. That's a take. And then the ATP, that is that is just so, so, so petty as well. Y'all let us know. As you may know, you may have seen the ATP has announced its award candidates, its nominees for their end of year awards. Player of the year, comeback player of the year, etc. The one that we want to focus on here is the comeback player of the year. Who do you pick? There is the 34-year-old Frenchman who finished 2018 at number 239, now at number 29, winning titles in Metz and Montpellier. There's Andy Murray, who I don't know how you can come back from more than he did in the span of one year in season. There's Andre Rublev, who was one of the rising stars of the ATP Tour, only to be derailed by injury. And then there's Stan Wawrinka. What's your pick? Mm. I'm not going to pick. It's. I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. But I think for setting the historic record straight, I will pick Songa just to kind of overcompensate for the injustices he has suffered on this podcast at your hands. You are trying it and you're, as usual, doing way too much. <laughs> I go with Murray. Player of the year, is there any doubt? It's Nadal, correct? Both he and Djokovic win two slam titles, Nadal has three slam finals. He also wins two Masters 1000s along with Djokovic, so they're equal there. But then Nadal wins Davis Cup in this fashion to end the year. I think that kind of pushes him over the edge. Mm-hmm. And he also has year and number one. Very close. Which, to your point about how some folks view Djokovic's year as a disappointment, when you look at their two years together, Nadal has incredible consistency throughout the year in his results. But the the main tenets of their 2019 resume are very similar. But Nadal is viewed as a roaring success at this point. Mm. We had a few retirements in 2019. David Ferrer, his interminable retirement tour, terminated <laughs> in the spring. Nicolas Almagro, he called it quits. Marcos Bagdatis. We covered Tomasz Berdyk's retirement a couple episodes ago. Victor Estrella Burgos. If you'll recall, Estrella Burgos won three consecutive titles, his only titles in his career, in 2015, 2016, 2017, all in Quito, Ecuador. 
well into his 30s as well. Tim Smichek, he retired recently, as well as Janko Tepsarevich. And uh, I want to say a couple words about Janko Tepsarevich, because one of the things that came out of Davis Cup with Tepsarevich on that team and Serbia failing to advance to the semifinals was this press conference that got a lot of play for the emotional nature of it. And one of the reasons for that was the fact that Janko Tepsarevich was retiring. I want to state for the record that I have not been moved by that press conference and I will not be moved by that press conference for the sole reason that Janko Tepsarevich is one of the worst offenders as far as sexism in tennis and male chauvinism on the ATP tour. Back in 2008, he had some of the worst things you'll ever hear spoken about women's tennis, shy of Justin Gimmelstab. He was translated as saying 99% of male tennis players can't stand women's tennis. There's no other sport with such a big disparity concerning level of play and the money women make. A friend of mine says that a woman who wins a slam should only earn enough money to pay for her airplane ticket home. Who knows what else I would say if it wasn't for Anna and Yelena, whom I consider friends. Imagine that. <laughs> because he's friends with Ivanovic and Yankovic. Oh my god. Imagine. Imagine. What, what, kind of... what could he, what worse could he say? But what kind of friend is that? But he goes on to say worse. So let's continue. He says, but of course, I appreciate the effort they're putting into tennis because I know they practice as hard as I do. The way women think on court cannot be compared to men. Their only strategy is hit the ball where your opponent isn't. We've heard this a lot mm. over the years. Nothing more. No put more spin on the ball. This is an important point. Play to her backhand. No way. Is that such kind of tennis works today? Look at the Williams sisters, Sharapova or Ivanovic, who hits the ball like a truck on steroids. I get a bit critical when I see how much the women earn and how their opening rounds go. That's what irritates me the most. I feel like going to WTA headquarters and something all of them. Look at Federer who is so dominant. He has to work so hard to beat Astarachi or an Almagro. He may even lose a set and then look at Sherpov or Ivanovic who lose three games in the first four rounds. It makes me sick. And as it turned out, the, uh, the shape of the tours are totally different in the last couple of years whereby the women have so much parity in the early rounds and Tipsarevich is out here losing easily in the first round in most tournaments that he played. So that was a bit prophetic in ways that he did not imagine. I have heard a lot of calls to uh, to sort of forgive this assessment, but I haven't heard him reassess what he said. I've heard no backtracking, no apologies, whatever. You can never trust these guys who are like heralded as the philosopher poets, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Now, congrats. You've read a couple books. You've read a couple books. Are you ready for your quiz on the mm. ATP season? Yeah. Are you worried, concerned? No. You've done your preparation? Not really, no. If I fail, uh, like, it reflects on both of us, so... Question number one. This is a fill-in-the-blank. You have to fill in four blanks. This is from the ATP 2019 season Wikipedia page. For the Masters events, the ATP introduced a shot clock. Players had blank minute to come on court, blank minutes to warm up, and then blank minutes to commence play, as well as blank seconds between points. <laughs> what? Okay. Okay, like, I don't have to do it in order, right? No. So they have five minutes in the warm-up. Okay, correct. They have 25 seconds between points. Correct. Uh, they have, uh, like, one minute to come on court. 
Correct. That's right? Yes. And they have, like, and then the last one was... How much time do they have to commence play once they've finished the warm-up? Oh, after the warm-up was, warm-up was done. Uh, 30 seconds? One minute. I was going to say, I thought that was too obvious. Okay, that was pretty good. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to give you affirmation after every mm-hmm. little thing that well, you do. luckily I can give myself affirmation. Number two, who won the Hopman Cup? Switzerland. Who did they beat? Germany. Okay, you get you get all of that. RIP to the Hopman Cup, which we're told will come back. Which of these players did not win an ATP title in 2019? Bautista Agut, Kevin Anderson, Riley Opelka, Felix Ogelesim, or Taylor Fritz? Taylor Fritz. Incorrect. Oh, the answer is Felix Ogelesim. Oh, he made the definitely know you that. should have known that because you laid out all the winners <laughs> for this agenda felix made three finals in 2019 in rio Lyon, and stuttgart question number four 15 players won their first atp singles title name five. Oh, i hate this uh Ger. correct christian garin correct opelka correct um Oh, Shapovalov? Correct. Come on, man. Wow, you're being particularly dim right now. Because the previous question was, which of these haven't won? Yeah. And you picked Fritz. But the answer was (laughs) Ojele Sim. So Fritz won his first? Correct. I didn't ask for the answer. You have to give me full points for that. No, I asked... I did not ask for the answer. I I wasn't done. No. I asked you off air because we had paused. I said, do you want me to just cut you off? And you said yes. What? That is so unfair. You did not explain what that meant. You got four fifths. You are not going to come up with the answer. The other 10 men who won their first singles titles in 2019, Tennis Sandgren, regrettably, Alex Diminar. I'm, I was going to say Diminar, but you cut me off. Okay. That cannot be proven. I don't care about the rest. Go on. Londero, Albert. Pella, Manorino, Sonego, Fritz, Jerry, Leovic, and Urkacz. Question number five. Four players defended a title from 2018. Name three. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, there were four players How? who won a title in 2018 and they defended it in 2019. Think uh, through it. Use your common sense. Djokovic at the Australian Open? No. No. But Federer that is that correct. Year. Because I didn't it's ask you correct. to name which tournament. But Djokovic is one of the answers. At Wimbledon. But I didn't get that correct. Uh, but I didn't ask you to tell me which tournament oh, it was. Okay. I said name the players. Oh. Uh, I'm sure Nadal did somewhere. Oh, at Rogers Cup. Yeah, he did. Does that count? It does. Two different cities. Also the French Open. Yeah, okay. Also Rome. I couldn't remember if he won Rome the previous year. And then who was the third? Um, it's also fairly evident. Dominic Team? No. Roger Federer in Basel. Oh, okay. And then the other person was Nikolaj Basilashvili in Hamburg. Oh, at Hamburg, yep. So you get two-thirds for that one. Question number six. Six players cracked the top ten for the first time. Name five. Berrettini. Yes. Medvedev. Yes. Uh, Bautista? Yes. Tsitsipas? Yes. And 
I'm trying to think of who else was at the ATP finals. Neither of them were at the mm, ATP finals. Yeah, I had a feeling. Who was at like 9 and 10? Schwartzman? No. <laughs> Hachanov and Fonini. Oh, ugh. So that's four-fifths. I'm giving you these questions where you can get a lot of credit, mm-hmm. a lot of partial yeah. credit. Mm-hmm. True or false? The 34-year-old Frenchman who lost to Sandgren from two sets up at the U.S. Open deserved his ban from the show. Absolutely false. That is incorrect. I will lose a point for the that principle. That is incorrect. The correct answer is true. There is no correct answer. The correct answer is true. Question number eight. Daniel Medvedev led the ATP in most singles finals. How many did he make? Nine. Correct. Hmm. How did you know that? Because I just knew it. Now I'm going to take a page from your WTA quiz where I give you two quotes and you tell me who said it. (laughs) Question number nine. He's my polar opposite and he is super salty. Who said this and about whom? Uh, Nick Curio said that. Had to have said that. About... Verdasco? Partial credit. Part of it, right? Kyrgios said that about Nadal. Oh, God, he says salty a lot about people. He does. And if you recall, that was from his infamous interview with Ben Rothenberg oh, on No Challenges God. Remaining. Oh, God, how can I forget that? Which we would that? be remiss if we did not mention that on a year-end recap of the 2019 season. He talked a lot of shit. So mm-hmm. much shit on that show. Does he ever need an invitation, though? Well, he got an invitation for that show, and he made the most of it. (laughs) Question number 10. I mean, our chemistry definitely isn't the best that you can find on tour. It just happens with people that it's not that you can just like everyone. Oh, that, uh... Oh, God. This could be, like, this could be three people. I'll read it again to give you a couple more seconds. I mean, our chemistry definitely isn't the best that you can find on tour. It just happens with people that it's not that you can just like everyone. Okay, so this is about Tsitsipas. I'm not going to oh, answer okay. until you give me so your I answer. So I think this is Medvedev about Tsitsipas. Well, wouldn't you know it's the complete way around? Oh, fuck. It's Tsitsipas about Medvedev. And I believe that was at the O2 finals. Damn. So you got zero for that one. I've tallied all your fractions. And you scored 5.5 two out of ten <laughs> that's <laughs> bullshit i don't really think that you wanted me to succeed a couple of these were pretty obvious i feel like you definitely could have made hay on though you're so close on question number 10 you just got it the uh-huh. other way around okay. i would i would like you to check your math again but i mean you gave the complete wrong answer about the 34 year old frenchman you you knew what the answer to that Wait, was how does that count that counts it's how a question it... it's a question you answered incorrectly. That is... You actually knew what the correct answer ridiculous. was. ridiculous. You knew what the correct answer was and you chose not to give it. So you wow. sit there in your shame of 55%. I fell on my sword and I'll do it again. <laughs> well, we're at the end of this ATP season and the end of our ATP wrap episode. Thank you for listening. Again, thank you to everybody who's donated to the GoFundMe. We thoroughly appreciate it. We've given instruction as to what's going to be rewarded in the GoFundMe as far as a personalized email or or TBS postcard. So please, if you are eligible for those, get ahead of the game and DM us, email us your email address or physical Mm -hmm. address. Or a social security number. We'll take that too. (laughs) And if you're like, well, I don't want 
no janky ass TBS postcard, email us and let us know that too. Because <laughs> that's a that's a valid yeah. perspective to have. Mm-hmm. You can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter. I'm Jonathan. You can find me at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can DM the Body Serve on Twitter at the Body Serve. You can Instagram us at the Body Serve or email addresses thebodyserve at gmail.com. Thank you for a wonderful year. We have enjoyed you all. That's a wrap on season five. Yeah, season five is in the books. Till next year. Okay, we move to Spanish because that's bullshit. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>